Yo, what's up, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another edition of Great Moments in Weed History. Now, if this is your first time listening, uh, we are both cannabis journalists and media makers, and we're kind of obsessed with all things cannabis. So on this show, we go over some of the more interesting points in the long, long history of cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? That is exactly what we do. Yep. And... You should know that I have zero prior knowledge of any of the stories we're about to hear. Bean has done the research and written it up, and he's going to tell it to me. We're going to have a chat about it, smoke some weed, have some tea, drink some water probably too. It's going to be pretty fun. So stick around, hang out with us, and then at the end, uh, we'll take your questions. (laughs) That's a little joke. Of course, we will not take your questions. It's a pre-recorded show, but you should hang out, and um, it's always Pretty fascinating. Bean, what do you have for us today? And uh, yeah, today's story is about one of my favorite places in the whole world. I think it's uh, an important place for anybody who loves cannabis. I can't wait to tell you about it. We're about twisted up on our joint. Uh, As always, if you're not quite there, I advise you to hit pause and roll something up or pack something up or do what you do. And otherwise... If you're ready, you're ready? I think I'm ready. You're ready for uh, another great moment in weed history. So, you know, cannabis places, great places for cannabis, cannabis havens. I mean, you know, a lot of places are running through my mind. A lot of them are more recent because cannabis legalization in the U.S. is relatively recent in most places. I mean, California, of course, comes to mind. And then places like Amsterdam, places like, I don't know, Barcelona, um, Christiana, right? Uh, There's a bunch of places. So... I'm not going to try to guess, but I really would be stoked to learn more about any of these. All right. Well, we're going to learn more about one of them today, and I think uh, some of those uh, might show up in some future episodes. Very cool. Because there's no way, and this is what the story is really about, there's no way you have a cannabis haven without cannabis people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the default setting of this planet, unfortunately, for a long time has been prohibition. Mm-hmm. And we've only seen the places that you mentioned break through because of great people and great moments. And uh, this story has really got them all. You ready? Yes, I am. All right. We're going to find out. So we all know Amsterdam. Ah, uh, Amsterdam, dude, for the longest time. I mean, the place synonymous with cannabis all over the world. Absolutely. Um, you been there? I have. So actually, my brother took me to Amsterdam on my 21st birthday. Uh, my family was visiting some family in Europe. And, uh, you know, he took me off for a couple days. Uh, we hit a couple different cities. And then finally, we were in Amsterdam for my birthday. And I smoked a lot, a lot of weed. I mean, it was definitely a raucous time for a 21-year-old uh, who loves weed to see a place where it's totally accepted or very, very accepted, you know, the most accepted I'd ever seen it. Uh, It was pretty exciting. You know, I think it really uh, showed me what possibility is in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful experience. It was my first time smoking legally. I'm sure yours too, right? Yeah, yeah, that was the first time I was smoking legally, definitely. And that was a uh, mind-expanding aspect of it right along with the weed. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've smoked weed in places where it's been, you know, a staple for thousands of years, but, you know, has been prohibited for the last few decades or the last century or so. Um, and yeah, you know, you're always still kind of hiding it. It really was this bold feeling to be able to smoke in public. It's something I'd like to tell people now, like smoke weed in public. And, you know, it's not to really be taken literally, but the idea of wear your love for cannabis on your sleeve, in a sense, I think you can do that there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the coffee shops are just a great experience unto themselves, a whole different social uh, setting. We're so used to alcohol as 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 the thing that brings us together. Yeah, seriously. And I mean, I think that that's an unfortunate standard because alcohol, as you know, fun as it might be and as harmless as it can be if you don't, you know, overindulge, a lot of people overindulge and it's, I think, the root cause of a lot of social ills, you know? Absolutely. Well, let's get let's get into this a little let's bit. Let's go I'm to Amsterdam. Okay. Um, I see you got your clogs on. I do. <laughs> so then we're ready. Uh, so we all know Amsterdam has long been a haven for cannabis freedom, but few people these days remember the flamboyant, anarchistic, defiantly pro-weed Dutch Provo movement, uh, which was short for provocateurs, uh, which used a mix of radical theorizing, confrontational street performances subversive art, and impromptu political demonstrations to undermine a system run by, quote, despicable plastic people, in the words of Provo founding father Robert Jasper Grootveld. Interesting. So, you know, once again, uh, we have an example of people having forgotten, really, uh, the roots of how they got their freedoms. I mean, a lot of people look at Amsterdam as just a crazy old time where, you know, you can get lit and eat a space cake and, <clears throat> and you know, and have a lot of fun. But in fact, that was a hard-gotten freedom. And, you know, not a lot of people probably realize that there was an activist group struggling to achieve those liberties in Amsterdam. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in the U.S., this is just, you know, pretty obscure history. But even among the Dutch, you know, we're 50, 60 years from these events taking place. Um, I, I don't know how well known the the provosts are. They were before the hippies, um, and and a lot of sort of their tactics politically became popular worldwide. Street demonstrations, um, bringing art and culture into this youth movement for change. Um, you know, they were uh, a very early iteration of that, um, particularly around incorporating cannabis as part of their uh, politics. Wow, that's wild. And I'm sure, you know, at the time, there's probably not a lot of other groups throughout Europe doing this kind of thing. Even to this day, uh, you know, progressive cannabis reform is going pretty slowly in the UK. I mean, it's going a lot faster in the US than most other places in the West. Yeah, in a lot of places. is it, This is one of the few places where, um, you know, we are more progressive uh, than most, if not all, you know, the U.S. is so schizophrenic because you, of course, were in California smoking weed and, and yeah. fully legal. But, uh, you know, we don't ever forget that uh, half the country roughly is still living under prohibition. Um, but our laws in this one area, uh, at least in the legal states, are being looked at around the world as a progressive uh uh, achievement and something that other places are now going to follow our suit. Um, yeah, after the U.S. 
kind of sparked prohibition. <laughs> yeah, it's like we, we worldwide. Sh- so, yeah. so, so we shit the bed, mm-hmm. and then now we were like, oh look, we cleaned up our bed, and then, and we're like, huh? everyone's like, oh yeah, clean bed sounds good. Yeah, but everyone else <laughs> still sleeping and shit. Yeah, and like you know, th- th- that's a funny thing too. If you think about, it, a lot of people ask the question, how when did drugs become illegal? When did cannabis become illegal all over the world, and why? Well. In the last century and because of America. (laughs) That's the answer to that question. Uh, But we won't go into too much detail because right now we're in the wonderland of Amsterdam. Absolutely. So uh, getting back to the provost and uh, Mr. Grootveld, uh, forgive me any Dutch... I'm probably not. I'm definitely not nailing any of these pronunciations. Honestly, I don't know. it's probably pretty close. I don't it's know. It's not terrible. I, I spent a quite a lot of time in Amsterdam yeah. working on the Cannabis Cup for like 10 years. So I trust your Dutch yeah. pronunciation. Uh, any non-Dutch person is going to be fine, and my apologies to, to the Dutch. Um, but getting back to Mr. Grootveld, uh, a master of using outrageous publicity stunts to garner press coverage and galvanize public support, Grootveld served as court jester for an absurdist movement with serious ideas about police reform, economic injustice, and social liberation. Wow, interesting. So, I mean, uh, you know, there's definitely, that's very familiar, people using art for protest. Um, And that's something that's really evolved a lot over time. I mean, we're talking, so this was, uh, what decade was this? Um, the movement really gets going in 1964. Okay, cool. So it's the 60s. I mean, you're seeing sort of progressive youth movements all over the place. I mean, would it be safe to say these guys are kind of like the hippies of uh, the Netherlands? Yeah, but they're a little earlier. You know, if you really think of 64, um, you know, that was the year Bob Dylan smoked out the Beatles for the first time. Right. Like, we don't, uh, there's not quite hippies yet. It's that crossover beatnik to hippie period. So oh. so these traditions are old, too. The idea of street performance is, is much older than sort of our conception of it. Sure. Um, bohemian groups have been doing that throughout history. Um, but these guys are definitely earlier than the hippies and and sort of an inspiration, um, you know, to people like Abby Hoffman, for example, and, sure. and other confrontationally uh, outrageous political actors. Right. Wow, that's really interesting. Imagine walking through Amsterdam in 1964 and suddenly seeing like, this brass street demonstration. I mean, that's got to stir up something, you know, in in anybody who that resonates with. Yeah, and and people sort of, you know, it's understandably people might get the idea because of the of the cannabis and because of prostitution is legal that like Dutch people are wild and crazy people. They're not. They're freedom loving people, and they're people who believe in tolerance, and they're people who believe in harm reduction, right. and that's why they have these laws. So this eruption of youth culture is happening in an old, conservative, uh, stuffy, European, you know, think of an old, uh, overstuffed leather chair with wood (laughs) paneling behind it, kind of. That's what they're up against. Yeah, that's what they're up against. Um, And... uh, So, yeah, that's... And and I think the other thing I wanted to hear what you say is, like, their main issues are police reform and economic injustice. That hasn't gone any, you know. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I think that that it is almost like, uh, you know, it's a pattern that you see of, you know, young people being, uh, you know, lacking complacency when it comes to these types of injustices and sort of going up against the authorities. 
And then, you know, it happens generation after generation, and most people just end up joining the status quo. But some people just keep blazing trees <laughs> and <laughs> protest. Absolutely. So, so starting in 1974, uh, the provost held chaotic demonstrations in a public square in Amsterdam where they denounced everything from tobacco to consumerism. Yeah, anti-tobacco was actually one of their root beginning causes. Uh, wow. And so they probably, I mean, saw tobacco as something that's peddled by the government, essentially rubber stamped by the government that's actually really harmful and like maybe even like pacifying to the masses in some way. I, I Look, suffocating your your brain, you know, it's definitely, it's got to slow you down a little bit. I'm a person who even still smokes some tobacco and I can admit that. Yeah, I am a reformed uh, tobacco smoker, so. But that was 20 years ago. Uh, so, Grudfeld and the Provost also tagged the city with peace insignias. You know, back before that was kind of a hokey thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to throw that out there before people had This is oh. early use. I mean, yeah. it's like pre, pre-hippie use yeah. of a peace sign. Yeah. yeah, so they're, you know, they're breaking new ground. And yeah. they're tagging, you know, they're, they're in a graffiti tradition, mm-hmm. which is also way older than people think. Mm-hmm. Um, they unrolled reams of newsprint in the streets to protest, uh, quote, the daily newspapers that brainwash our people. Uh, they staged environmental rallies when that was still a fringe cause. Um, they supplied uh, Amsterdam with free bicycles. Uh, no kidding. So, yeah. I mean, look, something so iconic for Amsterdam, everyone's like, oh, look, it's like the city of bikes. You know, it really is the mode of transportation there. Now there's like like very social bike sharing programs or whatever. I mean, this is a very early form of that. Yeah, they pioneered that. And and Amsterdam now is so, it's a model of how a city can accommodate bicycles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been to Amsterdam many times and you will see like a middle-aged couple dressed like they're going out to a, a nice dinner bicycling side by side yeah. like that's how Dude, integrated it is you know the town i grew up in the university i grew up in was exactly like this everyone rode bikes like my dad would strap his briefcase on the back of his bicycle every day and ride it and it was very idyllic people were more in shape you know what i mean there was less polluted i don't know it's like it really is uh it's kind of an amazing thing uh to think that that like you know the way that that got started was people putting power back into the people's hands by giving them the independence of a bicycle. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, and they, you know, they published, uh, they gave birth to countless art and music scenes. They published their own radical magazines. Uh, and I love this. Once when they were denied a permit for one of their anarchistic street demonstrations, they just turned up anyway, carrying blank signs and handing out blank pamphlets to demonstrate the government's silencing of their dissent. Brilliant. That is a fucking brilliant. Imagine like the moment of like, you know, uh, sort of just the epiphany that led to that. That's a weed smoking moment. Or, or a hashish smoking moment. Yeah, I bet whoever it was was smoking a fat hash spliff and was like, I have an idea. <laughs> like, you know, uh, that's it's brilliant. That really is brilliant. Yeah, don't let anybody tell you that your high ideas aren't the best ideas you come up with. They, they are the best ideas. That's a total weed hater, hater move when people yeah. do that. Look, you know, the, the, I think the argument for that is that when you do mushrooms, you come up with ideas that are so profound and so good that you can't even fucking remember them with your stupid brain and language after you're done. So, you know, it's like 
Just because you can't grasp them complete, completely doesn't make them bad ideas. They're good fucking ideas. You yeah, know? they are. Uh, you know, not not all of them, but uh, some of them for sure. Yeah, um, most of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and then getting into their their weed stuff. So to prove the authorities' total ignorance regarding cannabis and thus the total illegitimacy of their prohibition against it, the provost created marouette game. This is a Dutch word. Marouette game, combining marijuana and game, uh, which consisted of sending the police on a series of wild goose chases by calling in false anonymous tips about cannabis dealers and hashish parties that didn't exist. Whoa, no kidding. So they're sending them just all over town, like they're busting into random spots. I mean, that's a scary thing to think about because, I mean, you know, don't ever do that in America. <laughs> These are unarmed yeah, police. Yeah. Don't because, do that. People do this swatting and, and bullshit. And people die. Yeah. yeah it's it's, yeah. it's really fucked up. This, so, this you know. is very different. And, and, and this is unarmed police. And they were uh, sending them to like, oh, a public square, this or that, you know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, th- that's like... Uh, you know, that's definitely got to jam up their radar for the weed activity that's going on. And, and at this time, cannabis is totally illegal. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and even, you know, there it's it's new. You know, it's not new, uh, but as a cultural phenomenon, it's growing in popularity yeah. very quickly. And the police are more reactive to it right. as this new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very familiar sentiment that you see cannabis coinciding with or perhaps fueling uh, some of this dissent. You know what I mean? Some of the broader, more, you know, uh, psychedelic thinking on, you know, why is the world this way? You know, why are these injustices in front of us? So so these guys, the provosts, they're... Uh, they're going hard, man. They're going hard and they're puffing loud the whole time. Yeah, and, and I think that idea of that the revolution has to be fun to be self-sustaining is is an important one and it, and that comes from a weedy place. Yeah, absolutely. You know that that uh, that humorless form of dissenting against the powers that be, it's it's just it it has its place but it's not a mass movement. You know, yeah. things that come from a place of joy are self-sustaining and that's what I think is so impressive about what they do. Yeah. Um, so they also, and this is this is great. Um, the provost also reveled in baiting the police into arresting them for something that looked like cannabis, but was actually another herb. Oh my god! So they were like bunk bagging them. You know what I mean? They're like, <laughs> dude, that's crazy. And I mean, that I've uh, I've seen this happen. I've thrown down on a bag that someone has gotten ripped off on, but. I, you know, I'm proud to say I've never been duped by, you know, what looks like fake weed. But look, you know, cops are going to, you know, they see you with something that looks like a bag of weed. Like, they're going to go at you. But, you know, this sort of baiting them or, like, you know, in, in a sense, like I was saying, like, jamming their radar. You know what I mean? That's not only, it not only proves a point in kind of a hilarious way. Again, these are unarmed police. <laughs> but... You know, it it also it also serves to protect the people who are actually out there smoking. You know? Yeah, they're not going to be as responsive to uh, real calls. And clearly, uh, good times are being had by all in Amsterdam at this time, yeah. except for the cops. <laughs> except for the cops. So, <laughs> according to Grootveld, this is this is how it went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, this is him. 
Every weekend in 1962, I paid a visit to a specific police officer. During these visits, we always had a very friendly chat about marijuana. He didn't know anything about it, so I could tell him anything I wanted. Uh, (laughs) One day, a whole group of us went by bus to Belgium. Of course, I had informed my friend that some of the elements on the bus might take along some pot. At the border, the cops and customs were waiting for us. Followed by the press, we were taken away for a thorough search. And they had nothing on them, Yeah, they have nothing on them. They know (laughs) this is going on. (laughs) Those poor cops, all they could find was dog food and some legal herbs. Uh... Marijuana is dog food, read the headline in the newspaper the next day. (laughs) Wow, what a confounding headline. (laughs) Incredibly confusing. And be like, what? You know what I mean? It's like a a New York Post kind of headline. Yeah. It's by design, yeah. Yeah. So then after that, uh, the cops decided to refrain from hassling us in the future, afraid of more blunders. Wow, dude, that's fucking insane. So I mean... They're coming at the cops and, you know, it's uh, they're really getting over on them. But if there's one thing we've learned on this show and just mm-hmm. in life, it's that cops don't take this kind of shit laying down. No, they don't give up. That's, no, they uh, don't. That's what said. They come back and they come back hard as hell. Like, they will wait you out. <laughs> well, let's, you know, well, let, don't, don't count these provos out. All right, shit. Well, okay, cool. I was uh, I was almost expecting that point to come. I was like, man, these guys are fucking with the cops a lot. At some point in this story, it's going to be like smack, right? But let's keep it going, man. Shit. Okay, yes. I'm hopeful. So a- after this, hashish smoking uh, eventually became a ritual at weekly provost happenings, uh, and a push for legalization became a central tenet of the movement's political demands. Oh, cool. So, I mean, they really are leaning into the weed thing. They're like, this is central to our uh, to our cause. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, and this started out as just sort of a general, uh, you know, like almost a creative group of agitators, right? Yeah, almost and, performance art. Right. And now they've really zeroed in and essentially transformed into cannabis activists. And yeah, and they've <laughs> built this movement. You know, uh, you know, we we always focus on the leaders, but they've got numbers in the street. And they have a significant number of young people who are showing up for these happenings and and all about this new movement, you know, that to them seems like Fresh oxygen. Yeah, it's like the coolest thing on the block right now. Absolutely. So what happens with the provost? Okay, so they, despite suffering occasional physical repression, so the cops do beat some of them up in the street, oh. uh, but the Dutch people won't have it. You know, as soon as that happens a couple of times, Dutch people are like... So meaning Dutch people, like everybody, like not just the activists, but everybody is like, nope, not happening here. Yeah. Don't beat our young people in the street. Yeah, regardless um, of what their political motivations yeah. might be. Um, whereas uh, we have a pretty high, we have a decently high tolerance. You know, it's not about tolerating it, but uh, yeah, you know, they're they're not having it. Uh, so despite all of this police pushback, the provost's bold direct actions turned public opinion in favor of ending cannabis arrests, and they even managed to get a few pro weed candidates elected to the city administration. Oh wow! And I mean, we're talking about the seventies here, right? We're still in the 60s. We're still in the 60s? Wow. Yeah, I mean, from, from 64 to 66. Oh, okay, whole... great. So so this is all happening in a very short period of time. Okay, you know, it's like uh, there's a lot going on there. But yeah, I mean, that's crazy to think. I mean, imagine this. It's Amsterdam in the mid-60s. I mean, think about what America looks like, you know, in terms of its uh, 
its drug policy at this point. Not friendly towards <laughs> cannabis uh, just about everywhere. And here, I mean, there's a grassroots group of young people who are actually effectively getting people elected uh, who share their views in real time. These are not people who are like getting older and then getting a law degree and then, you know, having a family and then becoming elected officials or whatever. And they've lost all of that fire in their bellies, right? These are people who are, you know, taking action and it's showing results right now. Yeah. You know, again. Just like in America, how there was a baby boom uh, with the war, same thing. So these are their baby boomers just young enough to uh, old enough to vote you know there's there's a lot of them um so they can they could take some power that's cool um and then this is great uh, eventually the provost's ongoing clashes with the law led to the dismissal of Amsterdam's authoritarian police chief and the resignation of the mayor oh no kidding wow so they really did have an impact the mayor resigned over this shit yes and um you know it was because People just said, if the choice is between uh, these young people smoking weed and being wild in the streets, or you beating them, let them do it. Wow. That we're firmly against beating our children. Dude, yo, shout out you, uh, people of 1960s Amsterdam, (laughs) because that's incredibly progressive. I mean, look, a lot of times, you know, people will look out the window and see a young person being beat in the street and assume that the police officer or whoever is doing it is is justified in some way. Oh, they must have done something wrong. You know what I mean? But here, people are standing up and being like, hell no. That's really great to hear. It's inspiring. Yep. Um, so when the, when the movement officially disbanded in 1967, uh, Grootveld moved full-time into cannabis activism, including founding the Lowlands Weed Company uh, with fellow provo Cornelis Hokert. Uh, sorry. <laughs> that might have been right, but okay. Yeah, close enough. Uh, having this is interesting. Having discovered a rather sizable loophole in Dutch law, uh, which banned only the dried tops of the cannabis plant, uh, the upstart venture began openly selling small cannabis plants and packs of seeds from a garishly painted houseboat floating in one of the central canals of Amsterdam. Interesting. So they have this uh, this thing with the tops and not the leaves. That's like, uh, you know, uh, when in India, when, when they create an exception to the single convention on narcotics, they were like, well, let us use the leaves because the leaves, indica strains still have uh, resin occurring on their leaves. You know what I mean? So they, was, they could still extract resin from it, even though the tops were taxed. But that's interesting that that was like a model of it. You know what I mean? Like it's the cannabis flower that's really considered to be, you know, uh, the most, like, potent, toxic, uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, part of the plant or whatever. But that's, yeah, and again, another really interesting form of protest or agitation is just finding those interesting loopholes and being like, well, I'm not breaking the law, right? I'm just, uh, I'm doing this or whatever uh, to sort of show the absurdity of these, you know, Systems of law that we have, we build around us. Yeah, absurdity is 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 one of their key strategies. Is is because it's an absurd law, so they use that absurdity against it. Um, a kind of like jujitsu of absurdity. Yeah, 
So picture this, uh, you, you know, you've been you've been in Amsterdam. If you haven't, there's these beautiful canals that are basically running all through the central city. Right. Um, so uh, patrons, and, and then you, you turn the corner and here's this houseboat covered basically in little weed plants. That's right. all painted crazy garish colors. So patrons would marvel at the thousands of small weed plants in peat moss pots that covered every inch of the boat's decks. Um, but these plants are actually low-grade hemp grown from pigeon seed bought at a pet store. Ah, okay, cool. So it's not even like psychoactive cannabis. It's just for decoration and to make a splash and make a point. Um, but then uh, you would be ushered below deck where a bohemian tea house greeted you with the pungent aroma of a floating hashish-fueled nautical hotbox. Bro, that sounds like the chillest fucking place to hang out ever, man. Ah, that sounds so sick. That boat doesn't still exist somewhere in Amsterdam, right? Well, hang on. Oh, shit. Okay, so uh, this is Hokert, uh, his partner, you know, Grootveld's partner. Uh, he explained to High Times reporter Bobby Black in 2008 in an interview conducted on the same boat uh, called the White Raven, which he lived on until his death. So from 1967 or 68 or whatever, he lived on that same boat boat we're talking about until at least i think 2009 2010 when he passed away oh wow no shit boat life boat life life. for life yeah and that's a sweet thing it's like you live right in the center of amsterdam on your own little weed Mm -hmm. boat seriously Um, so he's talking now about the good old days you know uh when they first started this thing cannabis didn't exist for us at the time it was all hashish Uh, The hashish back then came from Morocco or Afghanistan. Uh, Marijuana flowers were not brought into Holland because it was too bulky, uh, too difficult to smuggle. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a classic thing. You know, the prevalence of hash in a lot of places is because it's easier to move concentrate, man. I mean, look, a lot of drugs, you know, you look at opium, heroin, you know, like, look, there's a reason that people in New York at club, in club bathrooms aren't, like, chewing coca leaves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Brewing up a tea. Yeah. Which, basically, I bet you the blow that they're doing in New York is about as powerful as chewing on a coca leaf because it's mostly baby laxative. Uh, news for anyone over there who's wondering why your cocaine's making you have to take a shit. It's probably because it's mostly baby laxative. Concentrating any drug, including cannabis, just makes it easier to move around. Uh, And there you go. I mean, I assume that that's why there was, uh, you know, such an appetite for hash in Amsterdam, despite the fact that there's lots of cannabis flour there available now, or at least, you know, when I was there. Oh, yeah, it's a long tradition. And uh, those trade routes go back, uh, you know, the ones all the way into Europe, hundreds of years. And some of the hashish trade routes are, you know, as old as the spice routes, really, mm-hmm. um, or the same or overlapping. Um, so he says, you know, so the only thing we could get in those days was either hashish or what they called lowland weed, which is no good to smoke. Um so it's like ditchweed. Di- ditchweed. And they name their company Lowland Weed Company. So they like name their company Ditchweed. Um company right. As a, as a joke, you know. And also it's like that's uh that's a little bit of cover, you know what I mean? <laughs> if somebody shows up, you're like, ah, this is the you want the hydroponic weed company. <laughs> um but so then we started to think. 
why smoke hashish when we can grow the best weed here in Amsterdam? Uh, We talked about it and said to ourselves, we have to bring back cannabis and all the knowledge we have about it to Amsterdam and warn people about mixing tobacco with hashish. Uh, So how do we spread that word? So they're still anti-tobacco activists also. Yeah. So they see hashish and really the only way people smoked it was mixed with tobacco. Right. So, I mean, were they like... Yeah, that, that's sort of an issue there because, okay, spliffs are much more common in Europe, in Amsterdam, than they are here in the United States, I would say, in most places. I mean, uh, you know, and they also use a lot of tobacco there. You know, it's like that's something you find they use half and half or with hash. I mean, it's a cigarette, essentially, just with some hash in it, like, you know, balls of hash in it or whatever. So, I mean, how do they really justify, uh, you know, that sort of cultural tradition? Well, they're getting to that point now where they're saying they want to promote smoking weed. Right. Um, And so they realize we have to make that popular and we also have to figure out how to grow our own uh, here, here, there in the Netherlands, uh, which is not really happening. Um, Right. So to, to, to help spread the word and the plant, the Lowland Weed Company's proprietors started planting seeds everywhere possible in the city. Um, from the Amsterdam forest to planters outside the airport, um, and they even handed out seeds to random motorists. Uh, oh, wow. Dude, that's crazy. So so they're just, I mean, again, they're sort of creatively agitating with this, you know, laser focus on cannabis now. They basically are writing every gag in the book. That's crazy. Yeah, and all these things that, like, you feel like you came up with yourself in a dorm room, you know, you were like, what if we just planted seeds everywhere? And, yeah. And there'd be pop. They were like, fuck, yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever Dutch for <laughs> yeah. fuck yeah is, they said it. And so this is this is him talking about it. He says, uh, there's a big tunnel where people come to Amsterdam from Germany. I stuffed my pockets full of seeds and posted myself at the end of the tunnel. The cars had to stop there for the traffic light. So when they stopped, I would say, welcome to Amsterdam. Here are some flowers. <laughs> and give them weed. And give them seeds. Give, give them, them weed seeds. seeds. <laughs> I did that for weeks. <laughs> they were always curious. What kind of seeds are these? Tulips, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you just got random people to plant what they thought were going to be flowers? Yeah, they're going to go back to Germany and plant tulips and then you know weed's gonna come up in the spring dude that's amazing that's a slow burn that's a fucking great (laughs) prank (laughs) uh then one day i went to the police station and said i'm a plant lover may i bring some presents for your garden and they said oh lovely plants and they planted it in front of the station so they don't even know what pot looks like these cops oh my god and he says uh they didn't know if marijuana meant a little quaint town in Spain or a plant. <laughs> um, yeah. So then uh, then he goes to the press and he tells them, I have a secret. At police headquarters, they are growing marijuana in flower pots. Oh, no shit. So he, then he goes and rats them out. Uh-huh. Dude, that's fucking epic. Um, so, you know, they're, they're hoping that the cops will arrest them for doing this and make it an even bigger media thing. Uh, but the authorities have wisened up by this point and they, they, they won't take the bait. Um, so in fact, by 1969, the Dutch authorities had issued enforcement guidelines prioritizing police to focus on hard drugs and not enforce laws against cannabis possession. Oh, okay. So, so meaning again, you know. The operations order goes out. They're like, leave the weed alone. 
uh, you know, it's not really the source of that much crime. Look, any authority, any police source, uh, you know, that's not trying to use cannabis specifically to target and oppress certain groups of people is going to recognize that it's actually a waste of time and money and resources to enforce cannabis. You know what I mean? It's like, it's literally like the reason that people enforce cannabis is they're going out of their way and spending efforts to try to fuck with somebody specific. You know what I mean? With poor people, with black people, or, you know, depending on where you are in the world, maybe somebody else, you know? But anytime cannabis is being enforced, it's not because, like, they're fighting crime. You know what I mean? It's because they're oppressing somebody. It's not because they're fighting crime, and it's not because they're looking out for your well-being. Yeah, exactly. Um, So as part of this new approach uh, by the police, uh, cannabis and hash house dealers were allowed to set up shop openly at certain music venues like the Milkveg and the Paradiso because the police reasoned it was better to have the dealers in a few secure places selling only cannabis uh, than to disperse them into seedier areas of the city where they might start selling harder drugs. Yeah, sure. There you go. I mean, that's and that's a responsible thing to do instead of lumping you know, cannabis, which is far more benign than any, uh, you know, other more uh, hard drug or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? You just have to start sort of enforcing it differently, separately, you know? Yeah, and it must have been good. I mean, times must have been pretty good at those clubs. Yeah. Uh, featuring live music plus the only one of two places you can buy weed and smoke it. Yeah, seriously. I, I feel like uh, that's a good part of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a montage of joy. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely. like end of end of act one going into act two. So then, uh, you know, they keep pushing. Then in 1972, uh, a Dutch student named Werner Bruning, sorry, uh, and some friends exerted squatters rights over an abandoned bakery and transformed it into Mellow Yellow. Uh, a tea house on a small side street that soon drew crowds for its steady supply of cannabis, uh, which could be purchased from an employee who posed as a customer. That's a good loophole. So, you know, these guys are kind of before, okay, so before there were ever coffee shops in Amsterdam, these guys are kind of developing the concept. I mean, look, in the United States, legal cannabis, medical cannabis, by no means does that mean on-site consumption in any way. In fact, that's something that's like really difficult to attain in a lot of places. But in Amsterdam, it's sort of part of the culture, right? And it seems like these guys are forging that the cultural standard right now. They're sort of creating the idea of the Amsterdam coffee shop. Yeah, civil disobedience. Um, and if you look at the, uh, you know, California was the early medical cannabis state. Um, there were dispensaries that opened up, uh, operated openly without legal protection there as well. You know, sometimes to affect change, you have to break a law to change a law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it, sh- uh, it should be a law you think is wrong. You know, I'm not saying murder people, murdering people is not civil disobedience. Murdering people right. is murdering people. But if you think there should be coffee shops and you're willing to take the risks, um, maybe you can create them by doing it. Right. So, uh, asked to explain, you know, why he opened the shop, this guy, uh, Werner said, um, I did it because a few tokes of good cannabis can dissolve the spider webs that are woven around us by the authorities. Very nicely put. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
it does uh, shake off some of the brainwashing, you know? Yeah, and I think that idea of spider webs as something that's like, you know, it can ensnare a fly, but we're not flies. Mm-hmm. We're stronger than these webs that have been woven around us. We just don't always realize it. Very um, true. And so he says, in in the old days, we were selling hash to friends from our small apartment in order to have a free smoke ourselves. Uh, But we had so many visitors whom we always gave a cup of tea that the joke was we should open up a tea house and make some money off of the tea as well. (laughs) Brilliant. That's when the trap is hopping. Yeah, man. You got a side hustle in tea. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Genius. Um, But the, the Dutch police uh, raided, you know, they don't give up, as they say. They raided Mellow Yellow several times, uh, but without success, because they could never find the shop's inventory, which was hidden in a nearby bookshop. Ah, okay, cool. So, you know, they're still they're still <laughs> swindling. You know what I mean? They're, they're still totally hustling the police. There's a real stoner comedy element to this whole thing. Um, so this so this success inspires other coffee shops to open. Uh, and then in 1972, the Dutch government uh, decides to undertake a big study of all of their drug laws. Oh, that's very responsible. Yeah. So this is also in the same year, 1972, uh, the Schaefer Commission in the U.S., which Nixon uh put into place to study drug laws, and uh, the Ledain Commission in Canada, all studying drug laws, all come to the same conclusion. Uh, marijuana should be depenalized and decriminalized. But only the Dutch actually do it. No kidding. So, yeah, I mean, again, you know, it, it's it's the logical thing to do. You know what I mean? If, if you're not going with that option, you know, you're literally spending resources for, you know, for, for no reason in a lot of ways, you know? So, I mean, that, that's amazing to hear. Look, in a lot of places, and, and this is this is federal law we're talking about here? Yeah, this is the whole country. Yeah, so, I mean, look, there's not a lot of places where that kind of progress can happen, you know, so quickly. Uh, but I mean, and and it it stuck through the years, right through the ages. Yeah, it was it was always a little tenuous. It's never f- been fully legal. It's it's just been tolerated. And uh, there's a Dutch word for it, uh, for basically a law that you decide not to enforce. Gotcha. Um, and part of it gets into not wanting to run afoul of the uh, single. Uh, drug convention treaty, a UN treaty that sort of locked everybody into having it illegal. Right, right, right. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So they can never really fully legalize because it's just they don't have the, you know what I mean? They don't have the clout to do it in the face of this global agreement. Yeah. And because the U.S. is going to be the country to enforce it and you know, um, the U.S. has a lot of leverage to fuck you up if you're a smaller country, and they, yeah. they don't want to. They don't want to be that provocative. They just want to stop arresting people. Yeah. Um, so first, possession of up to thirty grams would be penalized, and then they allow the coffee shops to open. Uh, hundreds of them open, uh, and they're like I say, kind of tolerated. Uh, individuals can buy five grams a day. Um, but nobody explained how you were supposed to get your inventory. Right. There's no regulated system for it. So they're in this gray area. Um, 
At first, they replied on importing their offerings via traditional smugglers and suppliers uh, whose supply lines extended all the way to Indonesia, Nepal, Morocco, and, you know, other places outside the Netherlands. Uh, But just as they were charting this new path forward with cannabis, the United States, under President Richard Nixon, started cracking down on weed really hard. Uh, which led to a number of exiles from the upper echelons of America's cannabis growing scene to pull up stakes and relocate to Amsterdam, often one step ahead of the law. Oh, wow. It's like cannabis refugees kind of thing. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. People are actually moving to Amsterdam, flocking to Amsterdam because of this freedom. Yeah, this is, you know, the first, you know, after sort of the Anslinger era, um, This is Nixon relaunching it and really putting the fright into people in this weed community and and they pull up stakes and they see, wow, there's this place I can, you know, be granted weed-lematic community. Can that be my pun for this episode? (laughs) Yeah, that works. (laughs) Or it doesn't, but it works. (laughs) And I don't think I'll I'll have course to need that one again anytime soon. I'm going to retire that one from my whole life, not just this podcast. Uh, so All right, so what happened? Yeah. So these U.S. weed exiles brought with them not just their know-how and experience of cultivating high-grade cannabis, but also hybridized seeds that could be grown indoors or outdoors in the forbidding climate of Northern Europe. Oh, wow. Okay, so, you know, uh, like, this is interesting. You know, I thought that a lot of strains had come from Amsterdam, right? A lot of the genetics. But in fact, what you're saying is that there was a bunch of genetics that went from the U.S. to Amsterdam. Yeah, it becomes a safe haven, not just for people, but for these plants. Um, So they can be cultivated, like, with a little more freedom out there. With a lot more, yeah. Um, So already home to one of the world's premier flower markets and a center of plant breeding since the tulip craze of the 1600s. Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. So this was Michael Pollan's thing, right? In uh, Botany of Desire, he talks about cannabis. He talks about tulips as well. Uh, And in terms of like suddenly there was just like mass production of tulips and tulips were the hottest thing, right? And the prices spiked. A single tulip sold for the price of a, an entire row house on one of Amsterdam's best canals. Holy crap, that is ludicrous. For the genetics, so that you have this, it was all different weird little varietal. It's very, he of course compares it to weed in the book. Right, right. Um, and somebody popped the hot new varietal, a, a, a tulip that had a distinctive color, and they said, oh, I can take this one tulip propagate it, make clones, and I can sell this hot new tulip and I'll have the fire tulip and I'll pay the equivalent of, you know, prime real estate, super nice house for one plant. Dude, that is fucking crazy. But now, so, so basically, you know, talking about strains, some of the best fucking strains in the world basically are now developing in Amsterdam. Yeah, so, so... Uh, while the roots of game-changing first-generation hybrid weed strains like Skunk Number no. 1, Original Haze, and Northern Lights extend all the way back to Northern California soil, uh, those vital cannabis genetics proliferated far and wide thanks to pioneering Dutch seed banks like Positronics and Sensi Seeds. So you get these, like, 
just like the plants are hybrids, you get these companies where somebody came from America with their amazing seeds that they developed, mm. partner up with a Dutch person who knows the game there, right. and they make these seed bank companies. Um, and from there, uh, they're sending seeds all over the world. Right, and they advertise in the back of High Times. They sure <laughs> did. Man. They, they put uh, they put uh, butter on my bread for yeah. uh, many a year. I I mean I, I I went to Amsterdam for the cannabis cup maybe ten times to work at it. We'd mm. stay there like two weeks a year. I love Amsterdam. I love Dutch people. I love the culture there, um, mm. and that whole. Uh, coffee shop we'd seen over there is just full of characters and full of, you know, the spirit of those provosts mm-hmm. lives on in that community. Um, That's so cool, man. Um, so, you know, this becomes, uh, on the one hand, they're sending amazing weed seeds all over the world, which is game-changing all over the world for the first time. Uh, people had access to really good seeds and that changed everything. Um, And then at the same time, people from all over the world are going to Amsterdam to have this coffee shop experience and they go home, they tell people, they start to think, why can't we have this where we live? Mm -hmm. Um, So it changes the game globally in two different ways. When you went how, how to Amsterdam, you know, you were a pretty young person. Yeah. How, how did that how did so, that change you? So, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, when I went, I smoked uh, haze. I can't remember specifically what kind of haze, you know, but something that was very purely haze. And I think I had like various, you know, dead once in a while I would get some good weed. I was still, you know, in college. It's like. I didn't have a ton of money. There was weed available, but the first time I smoked like really, really insane haze was in Amsterdam. And, you know, it had this, when I tasted it, I was like, this tastes like medicine, right? You know, the idea of like, you know, some strains tasting like medicine-y. To me, that was like this like, you know, stinky stuff is, uh, is it tastes like fucking medicine. And haze ever since has been one of those strains that I, you know, still really sort of commune with, you know what I mean? When I smoke it. It gets me fucking lit for some reason. You know what I mean? And it's that aroma. There's something about that, like, you know, that pungent sort of smell. Uh, But, yeah, the first time I really smelled and tasted that in its purest form was in Amsterdam. And I always remember that for sure. And that's one of those strains. The the Hayes brothers were operating out of uh, Santa Cruz, under you know, totally underground. Mm -hmm. Um, And they brought those... Uh, genetics over to Amsterdam. Yeah, and, and the Am- Hayes brothers, Orville and <laughs> no, it was uh, and the- Redenbacher. <laughs> <laughs> Who are the uh, airplane brothers? Uh, Wilbur, Wilbur, and Wilbur Wright and Fly Orville Boy Wright. and yeah. Flappy, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Flappy. <laughs> <laughs> So then in, uh, you know, 1988, the first Cannabis Cup was held in Amsterdam as an informal competition among uh, some of the coffee shops. By now, you know, there's hundreds of them operating. Mm-hmm. It, it grew into this really big event and um, kind of that really also a lot of people became aware that the, co- the coffee shops were never allowed to advertise. So that that competition was a big way for them to put this beacon out for the rest of the world. And I used to work the event. People came from all over the world. It was such an international 
event. I mean, when you, because I would check people in sometimes. So you'd see person after person, country after country. Yeah. All just like, uh, it was like. They're like, we about to get high as shit. (laughs) (laughs) We about to get high as shit. And also like, and everybody else here feels how we feel. Yeah. Some people obviously came from really, really repressive places. Right, um, sure. You know. I mean, someone coming from like Japan where, you know, you get thrown in jail for like, yeah, and disciplined stringently for decades for having like a tiny pinhead of hash, you know? Yeah, we would get a uh, uh, whole, like a little tour group would come from Japan every year and the same people would be leading it and then there'd be like 40 or 50 people who'd signed up. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, what was interesting, one guy told me once that basically... In Japan, it's very prohibited. The laws are very harsh. It's very looked down on. But if you go to Amsterdam where it's okay and do it, that's kind of gets a pass because you're not breaking the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Which really kind of blew my mind. No, that's it. You know, it's it's like um, it's it's actually the, the way like Judaism treats cannabis. You know, I reported on this a while ago and talked to a bunch of rabbis. And it's that idea that, you know, the reason that Jews aren't allowed to use cannabis is not because of Jewish law. It's because of the secular law in America. But if, you know, you happen to live in a place where it's legal, rabbis are like, totally cool. Go ahead, smoke weed, eat (laughs) eat edibles, do whatever you want. In fact, here, I'll bless it. It's kosher. Kosher kush. (laughs) Yeah, kosher kush. And kosher, uh, you know, edibles. I mean, it's it's totally a thing. So, unfortunately... um more recently, uh, the Dutch coffee shops have been under attack. Hundreds of shops in Amsterdam have been forced to shut down in the last five years due to harsh new zoning restrictions. And in other areas of the Netherlands, a newly implemented wheat pass, like weed pass, uh, is required to enter a coffee shop, barring all non-citizens. Yeah, so, you know, this is kind of a crazy thing, I think. Obviously, they didn't start out, you know saying, let's legalize weed and make a bunch of money off tourists. You know, but tourists inevitably showed up. Like you're saying, people from prohibited places, people from all over over Europe. I mean, that's what you go to Amsterdam for. That You know, that's what people have said for, for like, a long time. Um, but, you know, I remember seeing news about this and being like, well, that's a bummer that, you know, they were never able to fundamentally change the law because, you know, now that's the thing about laws that are ignored for a little while, and now we won't enforce that. It's still on the books. At some point, they can always change their mind. And clearly, you know, they have in some respects. And it's not that people are coming in and smoking weed. It's that people are coming in and partying and also drinking and also, you know, kind of uh, overrunning these towns. But, so, but So they're taking away something that attracts people coming through and partying, basically. Yeah, maybe. That's sort of the surface, but the underlying is... Uh, is something else. Um, but so even even Mellow Yellow uh, is is the first coffee shop ever was forced to close because it's 800 feet from a school, even though the school opened way more recently than the coffee shop. And it's a hairdressing academy where like all the students are over 18 and could go to the coffee shop. Oh, that's insane. So they're yeah. like, this is a school zone, but it's a cosmetology school. <laughs> That's ridiculous. The cops had a long play on the provost. You know, they Dude. never fucking gave up. And and this is where it gets to the underlying shit of what's really going on. 
Um, mm-hmm. So this is all happening, this pushback against the coffee shops, not because cannabis or coffee shops have become more unpopular in the Netherlands, but because in 2010, the Dutch voted into power a right-wing, religious, staunchly anti-immigrant political party that has targeted the coffee shops as part of an overall authoritarian approach to governing, uh, one that stands in stark contrast to the country's reputation as a bastion of tolerance, liberty, and free thinking. Shit. And I mean, this is part of a a wave of right-wing government, uh, you know, elections across Europe and in America, too, where, you know, we've elected a uh, right-wing authoritarian, uh, you know. So, I mean, it's really sad to see, and I think almost a microcosm of, uh, you know, a a lot of places or movements or feelings or communities or whatever, you know, swinging in that direction. Uh, it's, It's a huge bummer because all the progress that the provost made, well, not all, but a lot of it is suddenly lost. You know, we suddenly take steps back, you know, and, and the work of of people who really fought for a bunch of freedoms is squandered. Yeah. And this, you know, I think it's also a lesson in you cannot separate the cannabis movement and the cannabis struggle from all the other movements for human rights and uh, justice. Um, because even in a place that's been super progressive on the cannabis thing, if if you let these people come into power who have these regressive views, um, they're going to put cannabis against the wall along with everything else that scares them. Yeah. Or everything else that threatens, uh, you know, their, their authority in, in that way. And I mean, look... It's scary to me that a lot of people are, you know, apparently expressing that that's the type of world that they want to live in. But uh, that we don't. On this show, we don't want <laughs> to live that way. <laughs> you know, I think the lesson from the provost is, uh, you know, your freedom grows as you, as you engender it. Like, live free and you'll be free. Yeah. No, seriously. I mean— You know, an incredibly inspiring lesson from yet another group in history that stood up to authority and did it especially creatively, and cannabis was a huge part of it. They took it up as a cause, and they made great progress, and they established a weed haven, one of the few places in the world at a certain time where you could freely smoke a joint and not feel like a criminal. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at GMIWH Podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. 
You could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.